Psalm 129 wants to remind you of this universal truth that haters gonna hate. And some people hate the sight of Jesus. Some people don't like Jesus. They can't stand him. They want nothing to do with him. Now, why do they hate Jesus? I think the answer is grace. They hate grace. They hate grace, so they hate Jesus. And here's why people hate the concept of grace. Because to come to Jesus, you have to do nothing. Come to Jesus, you have to admit that you're a sinner in need of grace. People don't want to admit that. People don't want to say, hey, there's nothing I can do but admit that I'm a sinner. People do not want to be told that they are a sinner and in need of a Savior. People don't want to believe that the gospel is good news for bad people. So some people don't like Jesus, and they can't stand the sight of him. And that's sort of what happens in Flannery O'Connor's short story titled, Parker's back. It's a story about a man named O.E. Parker, a wild woman chaser and heavy drinker who is covered in tattoos except for his back, which is bare. He has no tattoos on his back. The initials in O.E. Parker's name stand for Obadiah Elihu, which are Hebrew names. In the Hebrew, it means servant of the Lord. He is my God. And so O.E. Parker has a biblical name. But he's embarrassed by it, and he hates it. So he just goes by O.E. or by Parker. So Parker ends up meeting a girl named Sarah Ruth, who's very religious, but she hates his tattoos. And even though Parker is not husband material, and he wants nothing to do with religion and nothing to do with Jesus, Sarah Ruth still ends up marrying him anyway. And as you may have guessed, their marriage is a struggle. So Parker feels miserable in his marriage, and his way of coping is just going down to the tattoo parlor and getting another tattoo. Listen to how Flannery O'Connor describes their marriage. Marriage did not change Sarah Ruth a jot, and it made Parker gloomier than ever. Every morning, he decided he had had enough and would not return that night. Every night, he returned. Whenever Parker couldn't stand the way he felt, he would have another tattoo, but the only surface left on him now was his back. To see a tattoo on his own back, he would have to get two mirrors and stand between them in just the correct position, and this seemed to Parker a good way to make an idiot of himself. Sarah Ruth, who, if she had had better sense, could have enjoyed a tattoo on his back, She would not even look at the ones he had elsewhere. When he attempted to point out special details of them, she would shut her eyes tight and turn her back as well. Except in total darkness, she preferred Parker dressed and with his sleeves rolled down. At the judgment seat of God, Jesus is going to say to you, what you've been doing all your life besides have pictures drawn all over you, she said. Dissatisfaction began to grow so great in Parker that there was no containing it outside of a tattoo. It had to be his back. There was no help for it. A dim, half-formed inspiration began to work in his mind. He visualized having a tattoo put there that Sarah Ruth would not be able to resist. A religious subject. He thought of an open book with Holy Bible tattooed under it and an actual verse printed on the page. And this seemed just the thing for a while. And then he began to hear her say, Ain't I already got a real Bible? What do you think I want to read the same verse over and over for when I can read it all? 
He needed something better even than the Bible. He thought about it so much that he began to lose sleep. So Parker begins obsessing over getting a new back tattoo and how he wants his wife, Sarah Ruth, to like it. That one day, as he is in deep, he's deep in thought, as he's plowing this field, he wrecks the tractor that he was driving. The tractor slams into this tree. It throws Parker from it. And as he's being thrown from the tractor, he yells out, God above! And in that moment, Parker had a spiritual experience. He then immediately went into town and got a tattoo of Jesus on his back. He then runs home to show Sarah Ruth the new tattoo of Jesus, thinking that she will like it and it will help heal their marriage. But Sarah Ruth is angry because he wrecked the tractor, and she won't let him inside the house until he eventually says his real Christian name, Obadiah Elihu. The story ends with their encounter. Another picture? Sarah Ruth growled. I might have known you was off after putting some more trash on yourself. Parker's knees went hollow under him. He wheeled around and cried, look at it. Don't just say it. Look at it. I done looked, she said. Don't you know who it is? He cried in anguish. No, who is it? Sarah Ruth said. It ain't anybody I know. It's him, Parker said. Him who? God, Parker cried. God? God don't look like that. What do you know how he looks, Parker moaned. You ain't seen him. He don't look, Sarah Ruth said. He's a spirit. No man shall see his face. Oh, listen, Parker groaned. This is just a picture of him. Idolatry, Sarah Ruth screamed. Idolatry, inflaming yourself with idols under every green tree. I can put up with the lies and vanity, but I don't want no idolatry in this house. And she grabbed up the broom and began to thrash him across the shoulders with it. Parker was too stunned to resist. He sat there and let her beat him until she had nearly knocked him senseless and large welts had formed on the face of the tattooed Christ. Then he staggered up and made for the door. She stamped the broom two or three times on the floor and went to the window and shook it out to get the taint of him off it. Still gripping it, she looked toward the pecan tree and her eyes hardened still more. There he was, who called himself Obadiah Elihu, leaning against the tree, crying like a baby. Some people are like that. Some people don't like the sight of Jesus. They hate Jesus. Some people don't like Jesus. They can't stand him. They want nothing to do with him. And that's what Psalm 129 wants you to know. That's sort of a picture of how life is in this world as a disciple of Jesus Christ. When unbelievers see Jesus in our lives, They may not take to it. They may not be so keen on Jesus. They might have an allergic reaction to the supremacy of Jesus. I've told you before, if you love Jesus with all your heart, then people will hate you with all of their guts. And that's the bottom line of this psalm. And you don't get too far into the Bible until you realize that human beings hate God and the people who are in right relationship with him. In fact, all the way through the Bible, there's this theme of unbelievers hating King Jesus and his kingdom. And this is undeniable in our day and age. Our culture has an allergic reaction to Jesus and his kingdom. Our culture has an allergic reaction to truth. This world does not like being told what is right and wrong. God's law 
is hated in this cultural climate because it diagnoses human beings as sinners and rebels. And so what do you do as a Christian when you experience persecution and hatred for following Jesus? What do you do when you suffer in this life because you belong to Jesus, because you speak up for truth, because you share the gospel? What do you do when you don't get that promotion, when you don't get that raise, when you are left out, when you are excluded, all because you follow Jesus? In fact, what do you do whenever you face any kind of suffering, any kind of hardship, any kind of trial, any kind of overwhelming experience? Well, Psalm 129 instructs us to tattoo Jesus onto our sufferings. Psalm 129, the psalmist is telling you, tattoo Jesus onto your sufferings. Insert Jesus like a tattoo, like a tattoo artist inserting ink under the skin. Insert Jesus into whatever it is that you are going through. Let Jesus color your outlook. When you are suffering because you follow Jesus, you have to, in the midst of that pain and in the midst of that sorrow and in the midst of that injustice, you have to frequently stop and think about Jesus and talk about Jesus and remind yourself about Jesus. You have to occasionally pause and let Jesus dominate the conversation. You have to tattoo Jesus onto the situation and onto what you are suffering. And that's exactly what the psalmist does in Psalm 129. The psalmist knows that if you love Jesus with all your heart, then people will hate you with all of their guts. And that's been the history of God's people ever since the Garden of Eden. That's been our song since Genesis 3. And our song gets another verse added to it in Psalm 129. So look at Psalm 129, beginning in verse 1, and hear the word of the Lord. Greatly... Have they afflicted me from my youth? Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. Now, whoever wrote this song, and we don't know who it is because they didn't sign their name, and therefore they will not be getting any royalties from ASCAP or CCLI. Whoever they are, they're speaking on behalf of all of God's people. And here the psalmist is calling on the nation of Israel as they're journeying to Jerusalem to celebrate. He's now calling on them to join him in singing this song about their afflictions. He's calling on them to recall how they have been saved As they've gone through all their troubles. They have seen trouble after trouble. But he says their enemies have not prevailed against them. Ralph Davis says providence doesn't always keep the church from her fears. But only from her extinction. And that's what he's acknowledging here. Time and time again they have suffered. And time and time again Yahweh has saved them. He has kept them from extinction. Suffering is all that they have known. It has been repeated and relentless suffering. Psalm 129 is like an ancestor to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, where Paul says this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
That's what the psalmist is saying here. Psalm 129 and 2 Corinthians 4 are related. They're they're family. They share the same DNA. Greatly afflicted, the psalmist says, but not prevailed against. And then Paul says, afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And grace, this is our story too. This is the song that all of God's people all through the ages sing. We are always carrying around in our bodies the death of Jesus, just like the psalmist. And sometimes we literally carry the death of Jesus on our backs. Look at verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. I hear the psalmist is using... He's describing the situation they're suffering by using agricultural imagery. It's like their backs were fields that got plowed. And he may even be referring to them being beaten and whipped by their enemies when they were in slavery. So the idea here is one of humiliation. They have been enslaved before in Egypt. And if this psalm was written after the exile in Babylon, then certainly then. They have been humiliated. They have been run over by a plow. They have been abused at the hands of their enemies. And their enemies were like, what? Never heard of the Geneva Convention. Now get back to work. Hey, Bob, hand me that whip because I'm going to show this Israelite how we treat our enemies. See, verse 3 is just preparing you to read Jesus' words from Matthew 10, 22. In your Bible reading plan. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. If you love Jesus with all of your heart, people will hate you with all of their guts. When they see Jesus, they may not like it. But don't get caught up with all of the suffering. Acknowledge that that might become a reality. Jesus is sending us out as light into a broken land. Yes, so acknowledge that it might be a reality that you may suffer because you're a Christian. So prepare for it beforehand, but let your main focus be on loving Jesus. Let your thoughts be on loving Jesus and how much he loves you. How he showed his love through his life, death, and resurrection. Ultimately, how he showed his love for you on the cross where the plowers plowed through his back and made long their furrows. As you suffer, let your thoughts be on loving Jesus and the fact that he loves you. And that will help you prepare beforehand. Love Jesus with all your heart. And then, what gets you put in prison maybe someday? Loving Jesus with all your heart? That will be what sustains you if you do get put in prison. Loving Jesus might get you put in prison someday. And loving Jesus is exactly what will sustain you in prison. So do you love him today? Then you have nothing to fear because that love might land you in prison But your love for him, because of his love for you, will sustain you. His steadfast love will sustain you. When you love Jesus, sometimes you get scars all over your body. When you love Jesus, sometimes you get ministry tattoos on your back and on your body, like the Apostle Paul, who said in Galatians 6.17, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul had ministry tattoos 
of Jesus on his back, long furrows, all because he loved the gospel, all because he loved God's grace, all because he believed that sinners do nothing in order to be saved, but come empty-handed and trust in Jesus. But notice that the psalmist acknowledges the pain and the suffering in verses 1 through 3. He acknowledges that. But then, and this is so important, so catch what he's doing, he then directs everyone to the Lord. In verse 4, he points out that their enemies may have pestered them, but then he points to God's grace in that their enemies have not prevailed over them. He points to the furrows that were put there by his enemies, but then he points to the faithfulness of Jesus. The furrows in their back are ministry scars and tattoos that actually remind them that Jesus is faithful. Your sufferings become tattoos of Jesus' faithfulness to you because you're still here, aren't you? We've all gone through times where we thought, I can't go on, I'm not going to make it. And guess what? You're still here. And so you can look back and those sufferings now become testimonial tattoos of Jesus' faithfulness to you. I've been praying about a situation that I've been going through recently, and I don't want to be in that situation, and I've been praying. But even now, I can look back, and I can see tattoos of Jesus' faithfulness. I can look back in the mirror and see that he has been faithful to me. And there's a lesson here for us as we suffer persecution and really as we suffer anything in this life. And here's the lesson. When you are suffering at some point, you have to stop and begin talking about who Jesus is and what he has done and what he can do. When you are suffering anything in this life, an illness, persecution, family drama, work drama, when you are suffering at some point, you have to stop and you have to begin talking about Jesus and who he is and what he has done and what he can do. You have to insert Jesus into your conversations. You have to tattoo Jesus onto your sufferings. Because if you're like me, I tend to just talk and talk about whatever trouble I'm facing. And I never stop to just bring Jesus into the conversation. In the middle of your suffering, you have to stop at times and just talk about Jesus. You just gotta, as you're having a conversation with your spouse or a friend about the, the suffering and the weightiness that you are going through, sometimes you just have to say, stop, no more. We gotta talk about Jesus. We're going to end this conversation for a moment and talk about Jesus, about how good he is and about how faithful he is and about how powerful he is and about how he is sovereign over the situation that we're going through because we tend to inject power into our suffering as if it cannot be controlled. We have to stop and insert Jesus in there because if you don't do that, you'll lose your mind. You'll be overwhelmed, and the devil knows this. So he will do everything that he can to get you to focus on your troubles, focus on your sorrows, and never bring Jesus into the conversation. I heard an old preacher say this once, praise is the plow that prepares the heart for the planting of the promises. 
He actually said it like this. Praise is the plow that prepares the heart for the planting of the promises. And I still remember it. And that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. In verse 4, he stops and says, the Lord is righteous. He pauses as he discusses the suffering that he's going through. He pauses and he says, Yahweh is righteous. He pauses to focus on Yahweh. He pauses to praise Yahweh so that he will be reminded that Yahweh is righteous so that his heart will be plowed and ready to receive the planting of God's promises, namely that Yahweh hears our prayers and intervenes in our lives and deals with our enemies. So when you are suffering, whatever it is, at some point you have to stop and begin talking about who Jesus is and what he has done for you in the gospel and what he can do. You have to insert Jesus into the conversations that you are having. You have to ask him to pull up a seat and recalibrate your heart. You cannot obsess over your situation without connecting it to Jesus, because it will kill you. You cannot obsess over your situation without connecting it to Jesus, otherwise it will kill you. It will suck the life out of your soul. You have to stop periodically when you are suffering and get your theological bearings again. You have to insert Jesus into the heartbreaking and heart-wrenching conversations that you are having. You have to talk about Jesus. You have to talk about what he is like. You have to remind yourself of all that he is for you. You have to be reminded that you are in union with Jesus, the king and sovereign ruler of the universe. And when you feel like you've been run over, With a plow like O.E. Parker and Flannery O'Connor's story, you have to scream out like he did, God above. And you have to get up quickly and drive into town and insert Jesus into your life. And you have to get a Jesus tattoo. You have to stop and tattoo Jesus onto your sufferings. Like a tattoo artist inserting ink into someone's skin, you have to tattoo Jesus onto your thoughts and onto your conversations and into. And that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. He spilled enough ink in verses 1 through 3 on the furrows that have been dug into his back and their suffering. And now he's ready to talk about the faithfulness of God. And that's the pattern of Psalm 129. In verses 1 through 3, he talks about and discusses their sufferings. But then in verse 4, he stops and he talks about Jesus. And then in verses 5 through 7, he prays. And so that's the pattern. That's a great pattern. You're talking about what's going on in your life with someone. You're sharing your sorrows and your struggles. And then you stop. And you say, we're going to talk about Jesus. And then we're going to pray. It's not a bad pattern to follow. He's talked about his suffering. And now he's ready to insert some Jesus ink into the situation and let Jesus color his world. And what he tells us in the next verse of this song is that Yahweh is pretty handy with a pair of scissors. Jesus knows a thing or two about scissors. He's telling us that he got a tattoo of Jesus holding a pair of scissors. It's a tattoo he got on his back. Is Jesus holding a pair of scissors? That wouldn't be a bad tattoo. I might get one on sabbatical of Jesus holding a pair of scissors to remind me of who he is. Look at verse 4. Yahweh, the Lord, is righteous. 
He has cut the cords of the wicked. Now, the cords or straps here are referring to the ropes that would have been used to fasten the yoke to the neck of the oxen before the plowing process began. So Yahweh is pictured here as coming and breaking the plower's harness so that the plowing process ends. And so picture Jesus just showing up at the farm, waltzing into the field, unharnessing our yokes to the bewilderment of the slave owners. Picture Jesus cutting the ropes that held the yoke in place and then setting us free. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. And it's ultimately what he does when we suffer. At some point, either in this life or in the next, Jesus will cut the ropes that bind us to suffering and sorrow. And then everything sad will come untrue. Jesus does this because we are in relationship with him, because we are in union with him. And that's what's lurking behind the phrase there, the Lord is righteous. Those who are in relationship with Jesus, those who belong to him, we are protected because we are in relationship with Yahweh. He will do the right thing, and the right thing is caring for his people. And we can bank on that grace because we are his, because we belong to Jesus. And because we belong to Jesus... We will be hated. When people see Jesus in our life, they may not like it. The world has always hated God and his people. They hated Jesus, and he said that they would hate us because of him. So it will cost you big time to belong to Jesus. You will be hated. You might be thrown in prison. You might be martyred. Listen to me, especially you teenagers and you kids. People will hate your guts for following Jesus. That's the reality. And I love you enough to tell you this and remind you of this, not to scare you, just so that you're not surprised when it happens. When they see Jesus in your life, they may beat you over the head with a broom. And that's exactly why the psalmist prays the way that he does. He tells us in verses 5 through 8 what happens when you buck against the Lord. He tells us that Yahweh is the ultimate weed killer. Look at verse 5. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The psalmist prays what is called here an imprecatory prayer. It's a prayer where he asks God to deal with his enemies, where he asks that God bring judgment down on his enemies. And this one is not so startling. Some of the so-called imprecatory prayers that occur in the Bible are, shall we say, more colorful and descriptive. For instance, Psalm 3-7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Or Psalm 10, verse 15, Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Well, you'll find these types of prayers all over the Bible, and you will have to deal with them. Or you could just avoid passages like this, But that won't do you any good. You'll be neglecting parts of God's word, and I don't recommend that you do that. Anyone who reads the Bible is going to have to come to grips with the fact that God is described as having wrath against his enemies. And so how do you deal with it? How do you deal with a worship song in the Bible 
that describes it. Now think about that. This was a song that the church would sing in worship. This was a song the Israelites would sing as they journeyed to Jerusalem to worship. Now you don't see many of these worship songs today, do you? Come on, Hillsong, get on it. So how do you deal with these passages that describe God this way? You take it for what it is, God's Word. And you thank Jesus that songs like this were recorded because they give the church hope when evil men run rampant. These songs give us hope when evil men run rampant in our world. These psalms give us words that we can pray, that we can sing when evil men run wild and do evil things. And so these psalms give us language that resonates with our hearts when evil men do evil things and it seems like they'll never be stopped. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. He prays that all who hate Zion, all who hate God, all who hate Jesus would be put to shame and turned backwards. Now, the imagery that he's using here is one from the battlefield. He's praying that these evil men would leave the battlefield defeated, that they would be turned around and sent home with their tails between their legs. The psalmist is so sure of Yahweh's righteous character that he can say with confidence, put them to shame and make them run off with their tail between their legs. Now, of course, we want people to repent of their sins and and come to Jesus. We pray for that. That's what we're about as a church. It's our first name, grace. You can get in on this. We want people to do that. But we can also pray that evil men would be stopped. See, some people prefer a God who lets you sit in his lap as he caresses you with his ultra-soft, well-manicured hands that smell like strawberry lotion from Bed Bath & Beyond or Bath & Body Works. Some people want that kind of God, but when you get desperate enough and your troubles start to double and triple and you experience injustice, trust me, suddenly you'll get your theological bearings and you'll want the God of Psalm 129. And the God of Psalm 129 loves to help his people when they are in trouble and when they are being harassed by their enemies. The psalmist knows that they can't enjoy safety and security and singing unless God takes out their enemies. And so he prays, catch them, Lord. They hate us. They hate your ways. They live in defiance of you and your law. Put them to shame, Lord. So let me ask you this morning, when's the last time you heard someone pray like that? It ought to be more common. Again, this is not a chance for you to pray this way because you are angry at someone and hurt by them. Don't pray this for your mother-in-law unless she's a wanted terrorist. I mean, a real terrorist. But prayer sometimes puts the hand lotion down and it gets out the boxing gloves. Sometimes prayer asks Yahweh to intervene like a good weed killer, like we saw in verses 6 through 8. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not feel his hand, nor the binder of sheaths his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The psalmist wants Yahweh to be like some roundup or weed be gone and to get rid of these evil people. The psalmist is like an ad man on Madison Avenue pitching a tagline for hate be gone. Yahweh, tough on enemies. 
power you can trust. Now, the imagery here is one that was common in the ancient Near East, in ancient Israel. The rooftops of their houses were flat, and people would sit up there and and grill out and play cards and get a tan. And so they had to make these rooftops sturdy, and they did that by taking tree branches and dirt and packing it all together with several Layers And then in the rainy season, little blades of grass would sprout up from the dirt on top of their house. But then when the dry season came, it would dry up and wither away. And that's what the psalmist is praying for here. He's saying, let them be like that grass that just pops up and then it's gone. He's praying that Yahweh would be the ultimate weed killer and take these people, these weeds, out. Then he employs the imagery of reaping. In the spring, they would plow the fields and plant the seed, and then the harvest season would come, and people would bundle up the sheaves of the harvest, and they would pronounce a blessing on one another as they were working. We see this in the book of Ruth, chapter 2, verse 4. So what the psalmist is saying here is this. Don't let any of that happen to my enemies. Don't let them experience any plowing, planting, reaping, and pronouncement of blessing. Instead, Yahweh, let them pop up and then die like the grass on our rooftops. Teach them this lesson. No blessing for those messing with us. Listen, there's no blessing from Jesus for those who say, I am not cursed in Adam. I'm not a sinner and a rebel. For those who will not agree with God's assessment of their spiritual condition that they are born sinners, lost in Adam, there's no blessing for them. No blessing if you don't believe that you are cursed in Adam. Jesus only blesses those who can admit that they were born under the curse of the law. The psalmist knows this and that's why he prays this way. So Psalm 129 is telling you that sometimes prayer puts the hand lotion down and it gets out the boxing gloves. Besides, do you want a God who is passive to evil? Do you want a God who turns his back to the evil atrocities in his world? Do you want Jesus just to be meek and mild? Do you want a God who prefers hand lotion and manicures to boxing gloves? Not me. And thank God, that's not the God of the Bible. He is righteous, as verse 4 says, and he always does what is right. But notice what all of the last part of this psalm is. It's prayer to Jesus. The psalmist prays. He doesn't bottle it up. He doesn't stick his head in the sand. He doesn't stew over it. He doesn't go to social media to air his grievances. He doesn't pretend like he's got it all together or that his suffering is not that big of a deal. No, the psalmist prays to Yahweh about his enemies. He tells God about it. He takes all of his burdens and sorrows and suffering to Yahweh precisely because Yahweh is righteous. He takes it all to Jesus because he knows that Jesus is the righteous one and that he will do what is right. Psalmist would tell you today, tattoo Jesus onto your sufferings. Insert Jesus into whatever you're going through. Now notice, the psalmist doesn't get on Facebook here and tell the world that he hates someone. He tells Jesus because only Jesus can bear the weight of all the evil in the world. Our hearts were not meant to carry these burdens. Our hearts were not made to hate other people. Our hearts were not designed by God to hate other human beings. That came after the fall, after Adam and Eve rebelled. 
We don't have the infrastructure in our hearts to handle and support the weight of hatred. Let me say that again. We don't have the infrastructure in our hearts to handle the weight of hatred. Let me say that one more time, and you can quote me on social media. We don't have the infrastructure in our hearts to handle and support the weight of hatred. We will collapse under the weight. Hating people is outside the jurisdiction of our hearts. Only Jesus is the righteous judge. Only Jesus can handle this with true justice. Not us. Our hearts will collapse under the weight. And that's why during the civil rights movement in the 1960s, Martin Luther King said this, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. And so what do we do about all the evil that we see and experience in our world? We pray. We tell Jesus about it. We ask Jesus to save these people from their sins, to open their eyes to see Jesus. We ask him to intervene and to stop evil men. And then we may need to get involved just like people did during the civil rights movement in the 60s. We must get involved. We have to get involved in some way. And that's why we remind ourselves often that we still have to do something. We don't just sit back and pray and do nothing. We saw that several weeks ago in Psalm 127. We have to do our part. We have a part to play. We must stand up against abortion. We must stand up and say, that is wrong. We must stand up against abuse, physical, emotional, sexual. We must stand up against sex traffickers. We must stand up against racism, which is still an issue. We must stand with our African-American brothers and sisters and fight alongside them for justice and equality because we still have a long way to go in this country in that regard. A boy, a teenage boy was killed in Texas last week. In fact, there was a story last week about removing some racist statues in New Orleans And they had to do it at night, and the workers had to cover their faces and wear bulletproof vests because they were getting death threats by these white supremacists. This should not be. This is why we need imprecatory prayers in the Bible. We need Jesus to intervene and stop racists. And this is part of the pain and the suffering that we must endure as we stand with the black community. Just like in the 60s civil rights movement, we may get death threats and suffer, but we must stand up for what is right. We have to take risks and stand up for what is right, for what is true, and then we pray. We pray that Jesus would end all these injustices, and then we love people. We don't hate people. We hate the evil that they do. We pray against evil, and then we love them. We love them enough to tell them that they need Jesus because they're a sinner that stands condemned. We love them enough to risk our lives to tell them about the God that we love. It's true, people will hate your guts, but you have to love them to death. When they see Jesus, they may not like it, but you have to love them enough to speak the truth, stand up against injustices in our world, and then you pray, and then you wait and trust Jesus to do what he's going to do. Perhaps we should end this sermon and let Jesus speak to us. So let's pause and listen to Jesus. Let's tattoo Jesus onto the end of this sermon. Luke 6, 22 to 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Let's pray and prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper.
Father, we confess our sins. We're sinners, God. We confess that. We come to this table. This table is telling us that we're sinners. So we repent, Lord, for racism in our hearts, for not standing up for truth, for not standing up and crying out against evil. Lord, we, we repent for the evil that's in our own hearts, God. We haven't loved people like we should. We haven't loved you like we should. So we ask you to forgive us. And we thank you for the grace that is awaiting us at this table, Father, that sinners like us can run to Jesus and find hope and peace and forgiveness. And so, Father, we enter into this time to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. In his name we pray, amen.